Thank you for leading us, the instrumentalist in worship this morning. Thank you for Tom. I notice you get up and down a little easier than I do. What? Uh, Can't you Okay. Glad to have you with us. I see some of you that I haven't seen for a while that you're home probably for the Thanksgiving break next week, Lord willing. Lord willing, if, if the Lord hasn't returned, Dylan is going to preach on us a Thanksgiving sermon, and it will be the enduring basis for praise and thanksgiving. So I was going to try and wrap this up this morning on divorce, marriage, and remarriage, but it's going to be part three, so there'll be um, a break next week, and then I'll come back and, and uh, seek to wrap it up. We are in a series in Matthew, and we are had just finished the Beatitudes, and we are in that section that deals with you have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. Their righteousness was external. It wasn't internal in the heart. And so Jesus is challenging that generation concerning the heart, and it is that that we are examining marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now, this past summer, um, both before Mon and I went to Europe and after we came back, thank you, elders. We met on several occasions, sometimes on uh, some rather lengthy times on Saturday mornings and uh, a Monday evening, and we tried to evaluate uh, the different views that are currently among believers. We're not talking about unbelievers. We're talking about believers and work our way carefully through the scriptures and, uh, okay, where, where do we fall as a church family? So we have expanded our doctrinal statement to clarify that. It is on uh, both available in print in the foyer as well as towards the web. Now, when I approached that this morning, I want to walk carefully for this reason. I've been a believer now for uh, 50 years, became right when I uh, finished uh, my military and started the University of Illinois. I became a believer in 1972. I think I I have been in either eight or nine different churches, and I have never been in a church that has not been touched by the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And some of you, this may be a painful subject. Uh, again, I'm not intending to uh, draw up old pains. What I am attempting to do is say, what do we understand as the elders of Grace Bible Church, and myself in particular, what do we understand about this issue and how should we function? So that is the goal. Some say when it comes to a controversial issue, you shouldn't teach on it. I do just the opposite. If it's a controversial 
issue. You should teach on it, but you want to teach on it with great care and carefulness, uh, and that is uh, the goal. So I'm going to open a word of prayer. We will review part one just briefly what we, we touched on last week, uh, the pre-fall condition, and then we will come to the fall and the ramifications for it. We'll probably get through Deuteronomy, but we may not get down to uh, Matthew. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. You have taken unworthy sinners, and you have taken out the heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. We love you. We love you imperfectly, but we do love you, and we want our love for you to increase in full knowledge and spiritual depth of understanding so that we might approve the things that are excellent and we might be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ because we have come to be filled with the fruits of righteousness through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we pray for the illuminating work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We began last week by looking at the divine blueprint for marriage before sin entered the universe. Now, when I say before sin entered the universe, I'm talking about sin in the human race. Um, there clearly was a fall in the angelic realm before uh, Genesis chapter 3. Key and the crucial concepts we looked at in the pre-fall world is a Latin term, imago dei, or the image of God, and it is male and female only. You don't change back and forth. You don't decide what you're going to be. This is deception that is being taught today. God created male and female. And we saw Genesis chapter 1 is the big picture, and then in Genesis chapter 2, we come down to the emphasis on that sixth day of creation and the emphasis upon man and woman, male and female. Adam was given an assignment. He was to take care of the garden, to keep it. That word to serve there is also a word that's translated later on to worship. In other words, his work before God was part of his service, his worship before God. And Adam was complete in and of himself in this sense. He's a complete man. But he did not know at that point that he needed a helper. And so God had a little object lesson form, name the animals. And we see around that paragraph there are literary bookends that say, it's not good for man to be alone, I will make a helper. That word helper is not a derogatory term, it's used of God more often than it is of man in the 19 times in the Old Testament. 
It means Adam was not created complete in himself to accomplish the purposes of God. He couldn't reproduce and multiply, and it was given to both man and woman to have dominion over the earth. And so by naming the animals, Adam got the picture. There is something missing here. There's nothing for Adam. And so God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He did not like he created Adam from the dust of the earth. He took from the side of Adam and he created woman. And he brought, and he brought her to Adam to see what he, he would name her. And this is a compliment. Not C-O-M-P-L-I-M-E-N-T, but it has an E in there from the verb to complete. She was a completer for Adam. He needed a completer, a helper corresponding to Adam. And so she brought him to Adam. What are you going to name him? And he named her Isha because she was taken from Ish. You can even hear that in, in Hebrew. Woman, because she was taken out of man. And Adam's poetic naming of the woman, you don't want to miss this in Genesis chapter 2, where he says in 2.24, at last, at last, finally, I got the picture of what the Lord wanted me to learn there from the naming of the animals. At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And we see the, um, the therefore. I take it this is Moses' divine instruction given at Sinai when God told him to write down. Moses put in this comment in there. Therefore, for this reason, this is why the family unit is the basis of society. Before government... Before church, it's the family. Therefore, a man, leave father and mother. He doesn't ignore them. He still honors father and mother, but they're not the highest priority. And hold fast. Cleave to his wife. There is to be a priority there above every other person upon planet Earth. Here's God's plan. You're still to love God supremely. I want my wife to love God more than she loves me. She wants me to love God more than I love her. But secondly, we are to love one another in a marriage union above every other person upon planet Earth in an exclusive way. And they shall become one flesh, a term that we'll see when we come down to Genesis or to Matthew 19, and Jesus explains it. This isn't simply a physical union, and includes that, but now the two shall become one. You're a family unit together. And what a conclusion in verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They had nothing to be ashamed of. There was no sin. There, there were no, no skeletons in their, in their closet. They never had to ask one another, please forgive me. 
Adam had, did not have to be told, love your wife as Christ loved the church. He loved this woman. She loved him. They're in harmony together. And then we come down to chapter 3. Now, let me give the interlude of what happened somewhere after the sixth day of creation because God said when he created, it was not only good, but it was me'otov, it was exceptionally good. Go to Job, and you'll see the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, they're identified there as angels. Um, chapter 38, I know it's poetic expression, but the angels rejoiced. They were there on day one when God created, and they said, wow, look at that. He laid the foundations of the earth. And then walking through, not all take Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, but Ezekiel 28 is particularly clear. There was a cherub, and he was without sin. And he led, apparently, the other angels in the worship of God. And we became proud and decided, I want some of that worship for myself. And he fell. He fell. Revelation chapter 12 describes that fall. He took one-third of the stars of heaven, namely the angels, with him. So one-third, I don't know how many were originally created. There's no such thing as... Um, Angels having little babies or those types of things. They're, they're created individually, separately. And one-third of them joined in the rebellion. You know why two-thirds did not? If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, it's because they're elect angels. So if you don't like election in the human realm... <laughs> You find it in the angelic realm. God is still sovereign over these events that are taking place. So he fell. There is no offer of salvation to angels. None. To demons. None. A higher sense of responsibility and accountability. Um, Hebrews 1.14, what does he do? He offers salvation to the seed of Abraham. Now, so that takes place before Genesis chapter 3. And think about Adam and Eve at this point. They have no sin within. I sin because of several reasons. I sin because I still have the residue, sin principle still living within me, even though I have been given a new heart by God and it's not true of a believer that you are, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. You've been given a new heart, but you still have the capacity for sin and deception. They weren't like that. So they're not tempted from within, they're tempted from without by Satan. And he comes along. Now, I want you to look down. This is sometimes missed to chapter 3 and verse 6. And it says, And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Now, that's not a... You, you would say, well, of course he has to be with her. How can he offer it to her? 
This is not a redundant expression here that she was with him. In other words, he was there all along during this temptation account. And instead of guarding her and saying, no, don't do that, that's not right, he went right along with it. So that's why when you find in the New Testament that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. He just rebelled flatly against God. He was in the transgression. Transgression means you know where the boundary is, and you step out deliberately beyond it in rebellion. He chose the woman over God. So let's just look basically what took place. The serpent was more crafty. He was brilliant in evil, more than any other beast of the field. Now, when it talks about more than any other beast of the field, this is, it's very common today to find, even among professing evangelicals, to say this is just a, uh, a story um, about how sin entered the world, but you don't have to take all the parts literal. I say, I'm, I'm going to take it as it says here. So when it says that he was more crafty than any other beast of the field, and it talks about the serpent, it was a serpent. But Satan was using that serpent. And so notice the first thing that he asked. Did God, and the word here is, is the, the particular adverb, did God really say that to you? Would God do that to you? Would God, would God say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And if you go back and you look at it, we don't know how Eve learned about it. She wasn't there when God gave that prohibition to Adam. Either God gave her revelation, but more likely, Adam told her, no, there's an abundance we can eat of every tree. Look at all the provision that God has given to us, but not that one. No problem. And so the tempter comes along, and he says, uh, would God say that? Why would God say that to you? Do you see what he's already doing? He is trying to poison their mind regarding God. God is not really good like you think he is. He is good. And so the woman engages in a dialogue, and and. Remember, again, it says the man was with her, so he's here. And the woman said, well, we can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God says you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So already we see there's something taking place. She's adding to what God has said. And the serpent says to him, now he instilled doubt, and now he denies what God has said. God says, you will surely die. It's an emphatic way of doing that in Hebrew. Count on it. Count on it. And Satan says, no, that'll never happen. You're, you're not going to die. And let me give you a reason why you're not going to die and why God isn't as good as you think he is, because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened, the eyes of your understanding. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you know what? Satan's gone. We don't find him 
in this temptation account right now. Now, I do understand that there has been this rebellion in the angelic realm. One-third have fallen, what we will call later demons. They have a hierarchy. Satan is the leader of them. So what I cannot see this morning, and you cannot necessarily see this morning with the visible eye, if you're a believer through Scripture, you can see with the eye of faith. And so we are engaged in a spiritual war today, and you have to take up the main weapon, which is what? What is God has said? And continually the primary attack is always this. Did God really say? Did God really say? And poison your understanding of God. God's not really as good as you think he is. Whenever you start to go down that road and you leave Scripture and you start to question by your circumstances the goodness of God, you're in serious trouble. This is, this is the primary attack here. Now, I don't always understand the ways of God. I'm, I'm, I'm finite. He's infinite. And sometimes I read Scripture passages and I scratch my head. But I, I keep two things always anchored that keeps me anchored rightly to God. Number one, this is His Word. He has spoken. And I'm going to believe what He has said. And secondly, God is good no matter what my circumstances may be. I mean, just read the book of Job. So, we see it here. And God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw. She looked. Do you, do you realize how powerful visual sight is to us? She hasn't fallen yet. She doesn't have a sin nature yet, but sight, seeing. And so she did the first experiment. I'm going to decide who was true. Was God true or was Satan true? And she's going to evaluate that by her finite mind. Adam's here. Don't discount that, that he's off in somewhere else. The text says he was with her. And so she goes and she takes a look at it, and then it's quick action what takes place. She saw... It was delightful to the eyes. The tree was desired to make one wise. She took, she gave, she ate, and she gave it to her husband who was with her. In other words, instead of protecting Eve and saying, no, 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 don't do that. We're going to believe God here. He ate as well, and the eyes of both of them were opened. Opened not in the sense that they were physically blind, but now they can see in a sense that they couldn't before. And now that they know they were no naked, but it doesn't say they're not ashamed anymore because it's exactly the opposite. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In other words, we're going to make up for what we did by our own efforts. This is self-righteousness right here at the very beginning. What's the first thing? They now, the God that they worshipped, 
they knew, they had no question about his goodness, their fellowship with him, and now they're hiding. Can, can you imagine what happened? They would never have thought that they, they could hide from God, even have a desire to hide from God. The omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence of God got marred by sin. And so now they're trying to hide. And guess who takes the initiative? Aren't we thankful that God takes the initiative in salvation? Because if it was up to us, you know what your vote is by nature now that you've sinned? Your, your vote, my vote, makes it clear. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We're hostile to God. Romans 8, we're not, we don't have the capacity by nature. God has to come seeking us, and that's exactly what he did. Now, I'm going to emphasize <laughs> the consequences here and at least move on to Deuteronomy 24, perhaps. But I want, I want to emphasize here just the consequences. First of all, he addresses, he asks them questions, and uh, particularly with the man, what, what does he say? See, this was a wonderful gift. I named her Isha because she was taken from east, from me. the bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. What a great gift you have given to me, God. Exuberant. And now, um, Lord, you know that woman that you gave to me? Yeah. But notice who he is really indicting, that you gave to me. So he's really saying, God, this is your fault. If you hadn't given me the woman... This would not have occurred. You see, the wonderful gift, the compliment, the completer, the one that Adam needs and designed by God, and now sin mars all of that in his understanding. It all starts with thinking wrongly and acting wrongly. And so there is a curse that is, that it, that is placed there, the consequences of unbelief I didn't put on here for uh, the serpent, um, there's, there's a dual bru bruising in verse 15. Um, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the same verb, shuf in Hebrew, bruise, but there are, there are different implications. To get bruised in the head and bruised in the heel have different implications. And I don't know what all Adam clearly understood about that, but as we go on in progressive, in progressive revelation in the Bible, this whole bruising becomes much clearer. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Pain. There's going to be pain for Adam as well. Verse 17, in pain you shall eat of the fruit of the ground all the days of your life. So pain is a reminder that something went wrong, that there's sin here. Now, notice particularly in verse 16, ESV, I think, does pretty good translation. Your desire, and often the translation will be, shall be for your husband. No, it shall be for your husband. This desire is not a good desire. 
Look over at Genesis chapter 4. So Cain murders his brother. And the Lord says to Cain, challenge him, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire. This is, this is a word that's only used a couple times in the Old Testament. And here it's the same word as desire. Her desire shall be for you. It's a desire to control, to rule over the man. The compliment, the helper, now wants by sin to become the head and to rule over him. And then, going back to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the true tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall leave it all the days of your life. And guess what's going to happen? You, by the sweat of your face you shall eat, and you were taken. You were named Adam, Adam, because you came from the ground, and now, because of sin, you're going back to ground. Curse has not been lifted. Death is still a reality. But the sting, 1 Corinthians 15, the sting is taken out of death for believers. And now we have Adam naming his wife Eve. She's the mother of all living. And God does what only God can do here, and he takes an animal, the first recorded death in the Bible, and he kills it. And it says, no, that self-righteous fig leaves that you made for yourself aren't going to get the job done. And so God clothes them. There's a provision for sin by God himself. You can just follow increasing clarity as you go through Scripture. You come down to um, Abraham and finally Isaac, the promised son, is born. And get up early one morning, Isaac, and take your son along. In Hebrew, they call it the akeda, the binding. And he gets out there and it takes some wood and he goes, Where, where's the sacrifice? And he puts Isaac on top of there. And Adam is so obedient, he raises the knife to sacrifice his son. And God says, stop, stop. Now I know, I know that you have believed and obeyed me. And over there in the thicket is a ram. And that Yahweh will provide. God will provide. And then you could fast forward all the way to Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And you come down to about verse 12. My righteous servant will justify many. Here's a substitute. And you come down to the cross and Jesus there 
three hours of light and three hours of darkness, and finally he cries out. One word in Greek, tetelestai, has to be translated by more than one word. It is finished. It is finished. The redemptive work is, is, is finished. There, in Revelation chapter 14, it calls an angel flying overhead and an eternal gospel, an eternal gospel. In other words, it's an eternal gospel because this message is always true. It's from everlasting to everlasting and is good news. Christ is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This is not just some old story. It's the eternal gospel. And as we contemplate that and you understand sin and you turn to Christ who provides salvation, it will change your life. Gary was doing an excellent job this morning talking about faith. It's knowledge. It, 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 I'm so accustomed to do it in, in, in Latin. Um, notitia sensus fiducio, knowledge, assent, and trust. And that trust, the kind of trust, saving faith, always results in obedience toward God and love towards Him. It's not merely intellectual assent. If you know the gospel, you know truth that is true from eternity past and will still be true in eternity future. If you know the gospel, you know the good news, everlasting good news. And the message is not just true for you. It's not only for Jews or for Americans or for only people in the Bible belt. It's for everyone. An angel is proclaiming it there. It's to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe, and language and people, and everlasting good news for every people everywhere. It's not local truths just for one particular person. This is an eternal gospel, and it's progressively revealed in Christ. Now, I'm not going to get it nearly as far as I thought I was, but let me go to Proverbs here, and I will finish with that this morning. Think about wisdom literature that Adam did not have to be told. Eve did not have to be told. But now, with the entrance of sin into the universe, how does Proverbs begin? My Latin students aren't looking at me right now. I have them memorize Proverbs 1, 7, uh, um, they are ignoring me over there. Um, so I won't have them quoted in, in Latin. But the fear of the Lord is what? Is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. A fool is not a person with an IQ of 50 or 60. You could have, a, you could have the highest IQ. Uh, a fool is one who does not take the God of the Bible seriously and believe his truth. They despise it. So there are bookends around the book of Proverbs. You come to there and you come to the end, and what's Proverbs 31 about? It's a woman who exemplifies the fear of the Lord and how she does that in her behavior. So I want to talk, and 
Young people, please listen to me. And it's also for, true for us who are married as well. But someday, if you have a desire to marry, watch out for the kind of person that you marry. Proverbs is full of this. Proverbs 18.22, the one who has found a wife has found good tove and has obtained a delightful gift from the Lord. Does that have a ring back to Genesis? Yes. It's not good tove for man to be alone. A good wife is beneficial for life and enjoyable. Proverbs 19.14, a house and wealth are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife a skillful wife, a wise wife who fears the Lord. She is from the Lord. And there are also admonitions about the kind of husband you should want. He needs to be upright in heart, morally straight. Proverbs 19.22, what is desired in a man is steadfast love, chesed. A poor man is better than a liar. A good man, Tove, obtains favor from the Lord. So you should be looking for a person who fears the Lord, who is morally upright, who is Tove, who keeps away from strife, Proverbs 26, who can find a trustworthy man, a man of faithfulness. These are the admonitions that you should be looking. You know, the most important decision you'll ever make in your life is to, is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking eternity here is at stake. But the second most important decision you're ever going to make in life is the person whom you marry. So there are a lot of warnings. Uh, a person who has found a wife has, has, has found good, toe, but it tells you what this good person looks like. So there are warnings. Um, Proverbs 12, 4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Crown is a symbol of honor and glory. But this is antithetical parallelism. But the wife who acts shamefully is like rottenness in his bones. The contentions, the naggings of a wife are a constant trip, 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 trip. Better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. That's repeated twice in Proverbs um, Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful. The, the first word in there is sheker, it's a lie. If that's all you're looking at, I, I know one guy goes, I just say, how, how come you're going to marry her? He goes, man, have you seen her legs? <laughs> and I'm going, you're in trouble. You're, you're in trouble right off the bat if that's your number one uh, uh, priority. Um, beauty is fleeting. It passes away. Um, but a woman who fears the Lord, she'll be praised. One may be disappointed in the character of the one with beauty. Um, physical appearance is not going to last. The writer's not saying these things are worthless. He's saying there is something infinitely more valuable than that. And in particular, he warns about looking at merely the external. Proverbs 6.25, a loose moral woman, don't desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. 
She says, my husband's at home. He is, he's going on a long journey. Come back and, and spend some time with me. Sometimes a preacher can put foot in mouth. It's called foot in mouth disease. You, you say things you wish you hadn't said. We're in an elders meeting, and I was talking about Jerry Falwell while I was still alive. He came to seminary. He said, men, you go on the pastorate. I want you to get the ugliest secretary you can possibly find so you don't get tempted. And I said that I was, I was just, and I think it was Tom Chrisman. He goes, Andy, did you just hear what George said about your wife? I go, no, that's not. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you say some really dumb things uh, later on. There, it's not against beauty per se. It's against, if that is your evaluation, David was a good-looking man. Sarah was a knockout that married Abraham. The important issue is what's inside. So here's warnings about a man. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. He was greedy for gain. He troubles his own house. The way of the lazy person, a sluggard, is a hedge of thorns. The man who speaks perverse things, watch out for him. The merciful man does himself good, but a cruel man does himself harm. Leave the presence of a fool. You'll not discern words of knowledge there. A worthless man digs up evil while his words are a scorching fire. A man of violence entices his neighbor. Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Yeah, you, you want to go out? Go, go out to one of the national parks. You see a bear with cubs. Go running in between the two and see what happens to you. I mean, that's what's uh, a fool. Warnings for both. Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. I'm not quite as bold as Amos was, the prophet, and he sees the women there, and he called them cows, cows of Bashan. Now, I am thankful for ladies in our church that are not cows, <laughs> that we have godly women out here and have come to understand the importance and we have godly men in in this church so these these are admonitions and if you have gone through a divorce in your life and maybe still struggling somewhat i have a book i would highly recommend to you it's called steve byers putting your past in its place it's excellent you can't go back and undo the past you can't go back Adam couldn't go back in the garden. Eve couldn't go back. But you can deal with the present, and you can start to follow God and have his blessing upon your life by following him and doing what is obedient to him. And now it is noon, and I haven't even got to Deuteronomy chapter 24, so I will stop here. I do want to, uh, and we'll, we'll look at Deuteronomy 24 why this is a crucial one with the schools of Hillel and Shammai and different understanding and why they approach Jesus on that, on that subject. Well, let me end this way. 
Even in a fallen world, God considers marriage to be a solemn, lifelike, lifelong commitment. Proverbs, Malachi talk about marriage as a covenant, as a covenant. It's not just a covenant between two people. It's a covenant between God. When you take those solemn vows till death do you part, that's a solemn. But, but two people can be unfaithful to that covenant. Guard your heart, guard your heart, men. Guard your heart, ladies. With every instant, in the majority of cases of what I am personally familiar with, it's been the man who has been the main fault. I'm not, I'm not saying women are never at, at fault. Men, be, be a godly leader in your home. Work through, I'd be happy one of the other men to work, work through you, the excellent husband by Stuart Scott. What, what, what does an excellent husband look like by working through Scripture? What does it mean to love your, your wife as Christ has loved the church? And, and ladies, um, most women, godly women, do not have a problem following godly leadership. Evangelical feminism that says, I need to rule over or egalitarian views, they're wrong. They're wrong from Scripture. It's a compliment. The woman is still to be a helper to the man. We need her input. But be careful. Eve did give some bad counsel to Adam, and he didn't protect his wife as well. So he would where he should have. So what do, what do we do? Make the gospel the centerpiece of your lives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Don't be bitter against them. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord and see that you respect your own husbands. Parents, bring up children in the training and admonition of the Lord. And to have the power to do that, you need the gospel. You need to repent of your sin, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, Go to the Word of God, and He will enable you, whatever your past may be, to have a marriage that is pleasing to Him. Follow the divine blueprint.